The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and this is Slate's sports podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of January 6th, 2020. On this week's show, Slate's Seth Stevenson joins us to talk about the end of the New England Patriots dynasty or whatever the team's loss over the weekend signified, and a new profile that he's written of retired tight end Rob Gronkowski, who maybe would have changed the outcome of the game against Tennessee on Saturday. Hall of Fame basketball writer Jackie McMullen will be here to assess the life of one of the most influential executives in modern sports, NBA Commissioner David Stern, who died last week. Finally, director Theo Anthony will join us to discuss his new ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, Subject to Review, a meditation on the mechanics and metaphysics of instant replay. Josh Levine is Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. He joins me again from New Orleans, where the Saints lost in overtime to the Minnesota Vikings on Sunday, 26 to 20. Josh, you were at the game. Appreciate the reminder. Yeah, in case you had forgotten. Yeah, they did lose in overtime. I remember now. (laughs) That was bad. Did you throw a a metaphorical red flag after the no call against Kyle Rudolph for pushing off during his game-winning touchdown catch? I did not. I wasn't particularly upset about that. We can get into it when we talk to Seth, though. Okay. I just wanted to make sure you're okay, though. I'll make it through. We'll make it through together. I'll help you. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Saturday night in foggy Foxborough, Massachusetts, six-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady's team scored zero points in the second half of a game against a team quarterbacked by a guy who was dumped by the Miami Dolphins. That's not entirely fair because Ryan Tannehill has been pretty great since taking over the Tennessee Titans early this season, but Brady was pretty bad in the last few weeks and again in his first appearance in the lowly wild card round in a decade. The Patriots man managed just one offensive touchdown, and the night ended with the guy who last year applied to trademark Tom Terrific throwing a pick six. Did Brady's career in New England end after 20 seasons with that stinker? After the 2013 loss, Brady said, who knows what the future holds, which is certainly true. His coach, Bill Belichick, was asked various permutations of the same question. Let's listen to one exchange with a reporter. Those are collective decisions that are not made by one person, they're made collectively. And there's a lot of time and thought and effort and communication that goes into that. And now's not the time. Uh, I certainly appreciate that. I have just one more. Uh, if Tom says he wants to come back and play. And then it's the same answer that I just gave you. We can just keep going if you want to. Our Slate colleague, Seth Stevenson, joins us now. Hey, Seth. Hey, how you doing? Good. Let's start by breaking down Belichick's reply there. Mock his trademark press conference mumbles all you want. But that was a totally reasonable answer. Brady will be an unrestricted free agent for the first time in his career. He's turning 43. Belichick isn't afraid to cut ties with anyone. You are a member of Patriots Nation. Are you done with TB12, Seth? I'm not done with TB12. He's obviously lost 
two to eight steps from from his peak performance level. But uh, I'm not done with it. I think, you know, there's like, if he leaves, aren't there all these salary cap ramifications and bringing in a free agent would crush them and they need to, you know, bolster their offensive weaponry and, and they're only going to be able to do that if they can afford to do it. There's all these other questions around keeping him that have nothing to do with his talent level. I think he is... He can still pilot a team. I, I don't think I need to just cut ties with him. I'm not done with him. They need to improve the team around him. The thing that was so confusing about the Pats this year, they get off to this really hot start, 8-0 and then 11-1, and but the offense is just totally futile from, you know, after the first quarter or so of the season. They had really been relying on... Josh Gordon and then Antonio Brown, who are both extremely unreliable for different reasons. Those guys leave the team. And it just seems like, you know, Josh McDaniels, the offensive guru, and and Belichick himself, they're just not able to put together any sort of scheme or find any sort of offensive playmakers, which is just so unlike the Patriots. They've always been able to cobble it together. Then we saw in the playoffs, it just continued. Like, what is your explanation, Seth, for why they were never able to put it together offensively for months upon months? Well, there's a couple of things going on. I mean, they have previously fielded teams where the skill positions were really, uh, offensive skills positions were really underwhelming. They've had teams in the past with like they had terrible receiver core, but Tom Brady would kind of just make it work and they'd use screens and they'd, they'd do all sorts of ways of working around their bad receivers. Yeah, that didn't happen this year. And they traded for Sanu to try to get someone better on the field. They drafted a rookie wide receiver this year who just didn't really do much, Nikhil Harry. So I'm not exactly sure. I think if there's sort of shared responsibility between there wasn't enough talent level, they just weren't really getting open. Julian Edelman wasn't Julian Edelman and was getting doubled. And the combination of those two things made him not super effective. And I do think Tom Brady is not Tom Brady anymore. You know, he in, in that playoff game, the passes were not quite as laser accurate as they had been in the past. He was often behind receivers or low. I think his decision making is just a split second slower than it used to be. He's just he's not quite the same quarterback he was. And so he can no longer make the people around him better in the way that he used to be able to do. And not having the guy that you profiled for Slate, Rob Gronkowski, on the team certainly didn't help. They were anemic at tight end this year. Ben Watson, who played a lot, was, what, 39 years old? Brady's 42 years old. The Patriots have the oldest roster in the NFL, the oldest defensive unit in the NFL. There are larger problems here. And it doesn't really make sense to me how signing a 43-year-old quarterback for even if it's just one or two more seasons is going to help Bill Belichick, assuming he sticks around for more than one or two seasons, get the Patriots back up to the level that everyone has come to expect over the last 20 years. Well, th- this is the question. If if Bill Belichick is sticking around and Tom Brady's leaving, right, are they really going to be able to bring in a quarterback that within the however many year window Bill Belichick has left is going to bring them back to the heights that they once achieved with Tom Brady? I mean, I feel like one more year of Tom Brady might, if Belichick's only around for a couple more years, maybe it is just Brady and, and you know what you've got. And, and, he, and he's, you know, uh, he's not a terrible quarterback at this point, although maybe next year he'll be even worse. I, I don't know if they can bring someone in and, and just keep it rolling like people are imagining. Life was hard for 40-plus-year-old quarterbacks this weekend. I watched Drew Brees and the Saints lose in the Dome on Sunday. Josh McCown, the backup for the Eagles, he's 40. Uh, He had to come in after Carson Wentz's head injury. The Eagles lost. Brees is turning 41 in about a week. 
And, you know, he does look better, I think, than than Brady does. And the Saints have a better offensive scheme around him. But you saw a year with the Saints that their offense is now adapted, mostly successfully, not successfully in the playoff game against the Vikings, to a quarterback with a weaker arm, to a quarterback who is diminished. And, and this is like, obviously what's going to happen when a guy is in his goddamn 40s and still playing in the NFL, it's miraculous that these guys are still able to play and compete at such a high level. And it's not like there are other, you know, there's like 32 teams with amazing quarterback situations out there, teams that wouldn't be very happy to have a Drew Brees or a Tom Brady. You know, there are teams that are going to be happier to have a Lamar Jackson or a Patrick Mahomes. But for as long as these guys can continue to play at a reasonably high level, the NFL is the, you know, as the cliche goes, the ultimate team game. If you put a really good line around them, really good skill position players, I think, you know, a a guy like Drew Brees can still win and succeed at a really high level. I mean, the Saints were scoring 40 points per game the last four games of the regular season, and they just stunk on Sunday. Let's not forget Peyton Manning won a Super Bowl when he was as diminished as any 40-year-old quarterback has ever been, pretty much, maybe except George Bush. Oh, he was just straight up bad. Right. And the Broncos won a Super Bowl with him. John Clayton, the former ESPN football reporter, did a piece for the Washington Post after the Patriots game that listed like six places that made some sense for Brady as destinations in the offseason, led by Indianapolis where the Colts have a really good team, but a mediocre quarterback who was one of the quarterbacks that was perceived to be a potential successor to Tom Brady. The Chargers were listed there because they're going to need to sell tickets in L.A. when they move into the new stadium that they're going to share with the Rams. The Broncos were on the list because they have a young quarterback that could maybe use tutelage. So there's always going to be a market for this, whether that's you know historical bias, that you're willing to give Brady or Breeze a place to play at less than full capacity in their advanced years or that they're just good enough to be caretakers, that's open to debate whether you might be smarter sticking with the younger players, but they're going to play. And Brady was clear that he is not retiring, I thought, in his press conference after the Patriots game. Yeah, he was he was a little more sanguine about his future. I thought there was a chance he would just say, okay, that's it, because he played pretty bad. I mean, he wasn't the complete problem in that playoff game against the Titans, but he, he did not play great. And I thought maybe he would decide that that was it but maybe he just he just can't go out with that pick six being the last pass on his resume i guess you know maybe that was the deciding factor for him. i i thought he would come out and, and leave the door much wider open than he did he, he really seemed to think he's coming back let's talk a little bit about the playoffs more broadly and this weekend there were all really close games all competitive some more you know beautiful to watch than others we could say But, you know, being in the Superdome for that game just was such a stark example for me of how amazing, alternately amazing and awful the NFL product is. Just the communal experience of being at the game for these moments that were, you know, transcendent when you're in the crowd. Taysom Hill breaking free for a long run. And, and to then, be clear, Josh, you were in the crowd, not in the press box, right? I was in the crowd, not in the press box. I was non-objectively cheering. So, uh, and then you have, you know, Von Bell running back a fumble for a touchdown to give the Saints the lead. Then you have the long replay review, which uh, confirms that actually he did not run the ball back for a touchdown. And uh, Dalvin Cook was, was down by contact. But you have these just like at moments of absolute insanity 
and brilliance. And then these just kind of long, it feels interminable when you're when you're there and not kind of stimulated by what's going on in your house. Everybody's just sitting there in total silence waiting to be angry at the refs. It's just a very strange experience. I don't know if you guys can relate to like going to a game after spending, you know, it had been, I think, years since I had been at the Dome for it for a Saints game. Just how different and bizarre it is to be in a stadium after you've become conditioned to watching these games at home. I'm so accustomed to watching them, you know, delayed with on a DVR and and fast forwarding through every <laughs> official replay, through every, you know, timeout after a, a kickoff, you know, we get like a kickoff play that where that's a touchback and then there's another stoppage for commercials. I'm just so used to Fast forwarding through those, yes, the one time I went to a game in person last year, I remembered, oh my gosh, there is so much downtime. It's it's really like, people have said it's the ultimate TV sport for lots of reasons, but for me, it's the ultimate TV sport because of that DVR function. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Rob Gronkowski, Seth. You profiled him for Slate, and you went into that piece wanting to understand what his post-retirement life was. This was a guy who was not only one of the greatest tight ends in NFL history, he also had this persona of being kind of the ultimate football player, just being fun-loving, seemed to like ring everything that one could ring out of the NFL, retires at 29 with $53 million in career salary. And yet there's something like very sad about him, or, or maybe it seemed like he was sad. So what did you find when uh, when you went and checked in on him? So I had seen him in this press conference he gave after he retired where he announced he was going to do this new line of CBD-infused products. And in that press conference, he when he talked about retiring, he almost started crying you know, talking to reporters about how football had, had like sucked the joy out of his life and how much pain he'd endured as a football player. And so I, you know, he looked like a beaten man in that press conference. And I didn't know what to expect when I saw him in person. By the time I saw him, which was about three months later, he did not look beaten down. He looked much happier. He seemed enthused about this CBD entrepreneurial foray of his. He was sort of closer to his gronky self, the gronky self that I'd remembered from his football playing days. He was pretty upbeat, except when he would talk about what he suffered while playing football, the, the physical pain that he endured. And that's when he, he sort of would again go into this mode where I feel like looking back, he almost couldn't quite believe how much pain he went through to play the sport. I think that's a truth for every NFL player. And what you experienced, Seth, was different because it was Gronk. Because the Gronk that we all remember is the guy spiking the football furiously in the end zone and the guy reading from a Gronking to remember on one of the late night TV shows. The reality for all of them is that football's miserable. They are injured all over the time. And there is this realization that I think every football player experiences in retirement. It's the body starts to heal. They lose the 20 to 30 pounds of muscle weight that they've added to play their positions in their careers. They look like more normal-sized human beings, and they want to forget what they went through. And I loved the way you described in the piece Seth, how Gronk didn't strike me as in any way stupid and the way he became so animated and thoughtful when talking about the thing that he loved about playing football, the beauty of the game. Yeah, he really did love that. He talked about how it activated his central nervous system, even like a practice day, how just lit up he would be by playing football. And he did really love it. 
but there was and 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 obviously you know made him fantastically rich and famous as well but there you know there is a trade off that i think he's become even more aware of now that the pain is still there like you know i i, I asked him you know he's only he only retired at 29 i think he's 30 now and he's got a long life hopefully ahead of him and with a lot of decades to pursue other projects and i asked him do you have any like longer term goals beyond this like cbd company and i thought he might talk about you know coaching kids or philanthropy or something and all he wanted to talk about was his quest to heal up his body and he talked about you know 15 years of playing football and the damage it had done to him and he just wanted to get his body right again and he's hoping to get there that really seems to be the thing that's weighing on his mind well, whether you experience it yourself or through a loved one, you realize at a certain point in life that the only thing that really matters is being healthy and feeling good and feeling like yourself. And I think there are a lot of people that would trade places with with Gronk that you know would want to have tens of millions of dollars, and that can buy you you know a lot of happiness and good and good doctors. But if you feel like crap, and if later in life you develop, uh, you know, neurological problems or, or just are in a, a lot of chronic pain from joint injuries, you know, no matter how much money you have, that's not necessarily going to make you feel good if you're in pain or if you're, you know, have dementia. Yeah, I think Gronk right now is very optimistic that he's gonna he's gonna beat this, whether using CBD or something else. That he's gonna beat his pain and figure it out, do yoga, and that he's gonna heal his brain by doing brain exercises, doing you know puzzles and stuff. But I think that the question is, he like you said, Stephen, he's not he's not a dumb guy, right? And there you could envision a different life for Gronk, where his dad you know had this very successful fitness equipment company, and you could picture Gronk just being an executive at his dad's fitness company and maybe being groomed to take over the company and having a nice life, where he's actually you know does pretty well money-wise and does not, you know, have the threat of dementia, does not, you know, have trouble sleeping at night because his legs hurt so much. I, you know, I don't know that Gronk, if he could do it all over again, would, would take that route instead. But, you know, I, I almost maybe would choose that route for him instead. Seth Stevenson is a senior writer for Slate. Go read his profile. Is it good to be Gronk, which is up on Slate now. Seth, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Like every other reporter who covered the NBA, I was criticized, mocked, and cursed out by David Stern. I was also often in the same conversation, treated warmly, joked with, and even praised. As every remembrance in the wake of Stern's death last week at age 77 has noted, Stern was the smartest guy in the room, forceful, demanding, sharp and fast, and usually right. He was a master manipulator of reporters, agents, players, and his bosses, the team owners. He helped save the NBA in crisis in the 1970s. He helped turn basketball into the second most popular sport on the planet. He helped make players incredibly rich. He defended Magic Johnson after his HIV diagnosis. He started the W. WNBA. 
But legacies are complicated things, and Stern's 30-year tenure as commissioner wasn't perfect. He tolerated racist Donald Sterling and other flawed owners. He botched the investigation into crooked ref Tim Donahue. He screwed over fans in Seattle. And not everyone appreciated his mean streak. Jackie McMullen knew Stern as well as any reporter. She covered the NBA for the Boston Globe, Sports Illustrated, and ESPN for more than a quarter century. In 2010, she received the Kurt Gowdy Media Award from the Basketball Hall of Fame. And last year, she received the Penn ESPN Lifetime Achievement Award for literary sports writing. She still appears on ESPN's Around the Horn. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. Every NBA beat reporter has a story about an encounter with David Stern, and they've all been sharing them in the aftermath of his death. Tell, <laughs> tell us your personal favorite. Well, my favorite was, I think it was 95, the first lockout, and things hadn't been resolved yet, and we were at a courthouse in New York, and I was not a new journalist, but I was new to television. And I was uh, with the Boston Globe, but I was doing things for, I was doing some TV for ESPN on the side. And they had me there to do a live stand-up following the proceedings in New York. And I had seen Stern, you know, as, I, as the proceedings ended. And, of course, he, didn't, he wasn't talking to anybody. He wasn't doing any interviews. So, you know, a cursory wave and off he went. So I'm, I'm lining up in this building and, I'm, you know, I've never done a live stand-up in my life ever. Of course, ESPN didn't know that or they never would have asked me to do it. <laughs> and I'm standing there. I'm getting ready to go. I'm looking at the camera and just... Just as we're about to start, there's like this shadowy figure that goes behind the camera. And as I start my live stand-up, the commissioner of the NBA is standing behind the camera with his thumbs in his ears, waving his fingertips like reindeer antlers and making the most outrageous faces I have ever seen, of, like a 10-year-old at recess. He was trying to get me to laugh during my stand-up. And it was just, I, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. And I didn't laugh. So I guess that was my test. That was the test I passed that day. But there was always a test, right? There was always a test with David. But that was one of my favorites. Our friend Ethan Strauss wrote a piece for The Athletic about a relationship he struck up with Stern over the last few years after Stern retired. And these phone calls they'd have and the kind of constant needling and challenges from Stern about everything from macro issues about the NBA to like Ethan using the word solipsistic in a way that David Stern felt was inaccurate. And, you know, Ethan put the most positive, I think, or had a really positive impression of David Stern, that he loved debate, that he loved a kind of intellectual back and forth. But in some of these other remembrances, Jackie, there are folks, you know, like David Aldridge writes about it, just like how Stern could be so mean to people in a way that seemed unnecessary at times, right. whether it was browbeating employees in meetings or, or something else. So how do you kind of sum up what he was doing and what his persona was? Well, he had a volcanic temper, and I was certainly on the, end of, on the wrong end of that from time to time, too. And, you know, there were two things that David didn't, didn't, wouldn't stand for, and it was to be uninformed or worse, to be ill-informed. Those were two things he wouldn't stand for, and that didn't matter if you were an owner, a player, a reporter, a secretary, the kid bringing the wrong coffee. Those were the kind of things he just couldn't tolerate. And, you know, you guys have been around a lot of perfectionists, professional athletes, and so have I. I've seen this in other people. I've seen Michael Jordan, this streak in Michael Jordan. You know, I've seen this 
And there's a, I'm not going to say his name, but an announcer that I admire greatly who's been in, in sports for a long time, who's one of the best, but everybody hates working with him because he, he wants everything exactly right. And that can be wearing on people because we're human. We make mistakes. And that was the one part of David that was not always palatable because he just didn't ever consider that not everybody was as smart as him or as careful as him or as accurate as he was. Um, and that was a lawyer in him. But at the end of every conversation, David always had this, uh, this, this ability to forget where you might not forget and attempt to patch things up as if this was just a normal course of business. You know, he'd yell at you and then he'd ask you how your family was. Right. Yeah, he did that a lot. But he also, you know, I remember once I got, you know, a call to come see him in New York. And I thought, this is great. All these years of my relationship with David Stern, I'm getting something here, you know. And I, I went all the way down to New York. I was coming from Boston. And he, in essence, brought me down there to yell at me. He said, you used to be nice. Now you're like everybody else. <laughs> and I said, well, David, my job isn't always be to not, not to be nice. And I said, by the way, you're not very nice, you know. <laughs> and so I, was, I knew him long enough that I could have those kind of conversations with him. And uh, I just, I would tell you this. I remember when I was interviewing him for uh, the, When the Game Was Ours, which was the book I wrote about uh, Larry and, and Irvin. And of course, David was such, was such a central figure. To me, the three of them were intertwined. And Larry often tells me, people say, Irvin and I saved the game. It was David Stern. It wasn't me. It wasn't Larry. I mean, it wasn't Irvin. And so I was interviewing him for the, for the book. And I had all my notes. I knew quite a bit. Um, about his role in every in the, you know the growth of the NBA, forty four million dollars in revenue in nineteen eighty four that that grew to over three billion by two thousand and seven. I knew all those statistics. I had all my stuff, but I was asking him questions because I didn't want to assume anything. And partway through the process, he said to me, "Well, why are you asking me these stupid questions? You know all the answers." I said, "Yes, but I need you to say them so I can use <laughs> them in my book." And he just thought that was the dumbest thing he'd ever heard. He said, you already know the answers to this. Why are you asking me this? You've lived this as I, I mean, he was just so irritated with me. And so there were times like that, that you just, you threw up your hands. So David Stern comes into the league in, or comes, has a relationship with the league going back to the 1960s when he was right. a lawyer and represented the league. You know, the biggest case that a lot of people are citing is the Oscar Robertson case, which led to the NBA, ABA merger eventually. Can you kind of take us back to the very beginning with Stern and the NBA? Well, see, the one that I think people should focus on a little more, maybe it's just because it's not as well known, is he also represented the NBA in the Connie Hawkins case. And for those um, young people who don't know the whole story of Connie Hawkins, he was a New York City uh, high school basketball legend, an incredible player who was cavorting with known point shavers and ended up getting involved in a scandal that he said he had, that he was innocent, that he had never shaved any points. And, you know, you could argue, you go back and look, he, he was on a high school team that dominated. He never got to play a second of college. And, and Connie's point always was, how could I have fixed games? We won every game. It was a high school game. People weren't betting on high school games. Anyway, I, I'm digressing a little bit, but it's a frustrating story for me. So anyway, Connie Hawkins is banned from the, he's blackballed from the NBA and his lawyers are trying to get him reinstated. And the firm that is representing the NBA gives it to a young lawyer named David Stern to look over. And he looks over all the documents and the testimony in court. And the fact that they yanked this, this young African-American kid away from school and just literally sequestered him for three days in like almost like a safe house without any representation 
um, you know, they would say things like, well, you did this, didn't you? You know, just, it was just, he was clearly railroaded. And so this young attorney went to the NBA and said, you've done a terrible injustice to this man and you need to reinstate him immediately. There was no evidence to suggest that he ever conspired to fix any games. And, uh, and so because of David Stern, Connie Hawkins was reinstated into the NBA. I don't know if a lot of people know that. And that's that's a, a theme that runs through, I think, David's career, too. He is he was clearly and very openly a progressive liberal who donated to progressive no liberal causes, as did his wife. And David, you know, what David did was take these players who in the in the 70s, especially by the late 1970s, were perceived as drug using. The league had a problem with cocaine. The league was perceived as predominantly black, which was bad for business, David effectively made the NBA palatable to white consumers, which led to its rapid growth after Larry and Magic and Michael became worldwide superstars in the 1980s. Right. And you know how he did that was he he talked to the players. I mean, I I, I talked, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was talking about going to the All-Star game and having to sit in this big banquet room with these bright lights, and Kareem had migraines. And so when Stern said to Kareem, what can we do differently? He goes, get me out of that room. Get rid of the lights. You know. So then they start having private receptions with family and kids. And uh, you know the slam dunk contest, Rick Welts was the one, I believe, who came up with that, one of David's right-hand guys. And so David was smart enough to go directly to the source and talk to the players, which I don't know if many people had thought to do that much before. That doesn't mean that he did everything they suggested or everything they asked, but he got a better sense from them what was going to work for them and what was going to make them happier. And then, of course, the the, uh, outreach they did with consumers and and the audience that was not coming to the games because the attendance was very low. I mean, he tells a story about uh, when he's the vice counsel for the NBA, he's not the commissioner yet, and there's, a, there's an all-star game in Brandon Byrne Arena in New Jersey, and uh, they can't give tickets away. He's, he's calling. He's literally canvassing people by phone and saying, hey, come to the game. And, they, and you know, they'll say, it's free. I'm giving you free tickets. And they'll say, all right, I'll take four. And he's like, take 40. You know, like those are the kind of things David was doing long before he was commissioner. So he was literally in this all from the ground up. It sounds incredible when you talk about this stuff because, you know, the – innovations or the decisions that Stern made that we're, we're reading about the last week just sounds so obvious. It's like market the players. It's like, right, wow, right, nobody exactly. had, had right. ever thought of that before. So how much credit should we give Stern for making the NBA versus coming in at a time when Magic and Larry were already there, when, you know, he starts as commissioner of the year that Michael Jordan is drafted. You know, he comes in to a scenario where there are these stars. And if the big idea is just let's market the stars, um, it just does it doesn't seem like it, it took a genius that somebody of, of Stern's intelligence to figure that out. Well, that's a fair point. Um, but you know, Magic and Larry were in the league a couple of two to three years before Stern took over. And it was only just beginning, you know, to swell the interest in that. I think it helped a lot that two of your most celebrated markets, the Lakers and the Celtics, were in their were in their primes again and were playing each other. And of course it was such a one sided rivalry back in the days of West and Baylor, through no fault of West and Baylor, I might add. They were playing a pretty formidable opponent that was usually Koozie Russell and um, a Jones to be named later. You know, there were some great Hall of Famers on those of Celtics teams. But that was the perfect vehicle. East versus West, lunch pail versus showtime, you know, 
like it or not, and the guys didn't, but African-American versus a, a, you know, a white Midwestern boy, it was just, it was, it was a made for TV movie. And Stern had the wherewithal to know what to do with it from there. Uh, but he also had smart marketing people that found out ways to appeal to advertisers too. And that was something that just hadn't been explored before Stern took over as commissioner. Now, I'm sure he was thinking about it as he was waiting for his ascension to that position. There's no doubt about that. The one thing Stern definitely deserves credit for is taking the NBA and making it a global property. He recognized that. And you, you mentioned something in your last answer, Jackie, which was that he hired good people. And that's a talent, too. You know, he surrounded himself with people like Rick Welts, you mentioned, who also, by the way, was a closeted gay man who lost his partner. And David quietly, without Welts's knowledge, made like a $10,000 donation to the cause that Welts had specified in the death announcement. So he hired all these good people. But the Having the vision to go abroad and see that the Olympics, which the NBA never wanted to participate in, by the way, until they lost in 1988 and Stern and others recognized that, hey, this might be a good platform. But I don't think anybody anticipated that going to the Olympics with Barkley and Magic and Bird and the rest of the dream team would, would, would make the NBA this global property. Or maybe David did. Well, it was such a, I mean, it was called a dream team for a reason. And you have to give Dave Gavitt a a ton of credit for the dream team because he was the one that got on the line with these these superstars and convinced them to play. I mean, Larry didn't want to play. And I remember talking to Larry about it. He was injured. He knew he was. He was at the end of his career. He could barely, he could barely walk, never mind play basketball. And he just didn't think he should take a spot away from a healthy player in his prime who would have you know, probably performed better. But then it became Irvin saying, if, you, if Larry doesn't play, I'm not playing. And of course, Jordan was the one they had to get. But once they got Larry and Magic and Barkley, then Jordan was like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to miss this. So Stern and, and Gavitt together, I, I think you give Gavitt a lot of credit, and also Russ Granick and those guys, they, they were smart enough to understand, like, we can do a once-in-a-lifetime lineup here. And, you know, it was, I mean, the stories, they're legendary from Barcelona, Teams weren't trying to beat them. They were just trying to get their autograph. I mean, it really was like that. And what David was smart enough to do was empower his people after the Olympics to set up offices overseas. And I did stories on this for the Wall Street Journal. This was like a a focus in that era, in the late 90s, early 2000s, to set up offices overseas, expand, give away, if necessary, the TV rights in foreign countries, and turn this into the global brand that it became. Right. And and people don't realize that they have offices all over the world. I, I don't know that the... The um, casual fan knows that, but they do have. The one thing that I always wondered about, and I don't know enough about it to, to, to be very versed in it, is what happened with China, with, with Stern, you know, because he did make overtures with China early on. And my guess is, because of some of the things we talked about, that he had certain beliefs and a certain streak of stubbornness where he would only bend so far. Um, that it took a little while for, for China to, be, you know, to come on board with the NBA. And I'm, I've always, I, you know, if I could go back and ask David, well, I'd love to ask him a bunch of things now that he's gone, right? It's not always the way, but I wish I had spent more time asking him about China. Well, Henry Abbott, in uh, a couple of pieces, one in True Hoop and one at ESPN a few years back, writes that, first of all, 
Stern was kind of told before a meeting with with various Chinese dignitaries, like, you need to deal with the business cards in this particular way, you need to use two hands. And instead, he comes in and just like dumps all the business cards on a table is like, all right, let's do this thing. Um, And then there was another uh, moment that that Henry Abbott described where Stern said in in some press conference, like, we're going to do the NBA in China, we're going to have a league here. And this was news to the Chinese basketball officials. Like they Stern didn't say anything about partnering with the Chinese Basketball Association. And so who knows if any of these individual moments really meant the NBA wasn't going to launch a league in China under David Stern. But I think Those are that, great details, but do you really believe that dumping business cards on a table <laughs> was a deal breaker for two you know, countries of that magnitude that had so many millions and billions of dollars to share, right? It seems to me it's, it speaks to the larger issue of, you know, on my terms or no terms. Exactly. I think they indicate Stern's attitude and that he was somebody who always felt like, I'm the one running this process. I'm not going to, you know, modify who I am based on right. who I'm talking to. And, you know, he had a lot of success that way. And maybe in some cases, you know, the Adam Silver approach of being more conciliatory, more polite, you can get more things done that way. Right. Yeah. And definitely, you know, you look at the lockouts that created tremendous resentment with player agents and players themselves. Stern certainly ran afoul of culture and prevailing trends in his disciplinary ways after the malice in the palace and the dress code and the sort of, uh, of of the way that he tried to legislate behavior in the NBA. And I've wondered often whether Stern's force of personality and the kind of remembrances we've seen in the wake of his death didn't cover for some of these failures. Or do you think, Jackie, that failures were just part of this job and part of this 30-year timeline that David had in running the NBA? I think when you take big swings, which David always did, he wasn't going for singles. He took big swings. And when you take big swings, there's always going to be some big misses. I, the dress code was the one that confounded me. And he's tried to, you know, I had a bunch of conversations with him about that. And he just never convinced me. Um, the mouse at the palace was an interesting one. It was a critical, critical time. I think it was so bad. And the, the public reaction was so hor- horrific, right? And, uh, and I think he just... I remember Larry Bird saying to me at the time, you know, Bird was, was the GM. He was running that team. And he, he said, he, he's destroyed our franchise for, for the next several years. And Stern knew that, but he, he didn't care. And what he, he would argue later to people was that while he handed down the heavy, stiff um, suspension to run our test, that while he was doing that, he was also simultaneously meeting with our test and his family and trying to get him mental health counseling because he thought he needed it. So those stern, you know, the public response and the private interest was always a little different. I think malice at the palace. I, I, I think I understand why he did what he did because it, it just, there had to be. Now what I don't understand is, you know, the individual arguments with the Spurs over what we now know is an everyday term load management. You know, when pop made that decision not to start his guys in that game and, that was sort of, an, to me, a glimmer of a look into Stern's personality who thought, you didn't tell me this, you showed me up. I can't have that. That was an ego moment. I think the grand unified theory to all this stuff, dress code, mouse at the palace, the load management, is 
that Stern wanted to show fans and marketers that the players were under control, that the league was safe, that there was someone in charge, there was an adult in the room. And when you're talking about something like the dress code, that's going to come off as extremely paternalistic. And I think it shows that the imagined ideal NBA fan is like a middle-aged white guy. Um, and I think that's that's changed over um, you know the the decades. And I think you know that Stern wasn't um, necessarily a, a force for for bad in that regard. But I think you know it's it's telling that you know he implements something like the dress code and meets out those huge suspensions for for the fight, but uh, you know with the with the Pacers. But you know there's a DOJ settlement with with Donald Sterling over the fact that. He said that black tenants smell and attract vermin. Sterling is fined $2.7 million by the U.S. government, and he never gets a, a suspension or a fine or anything under, under David Stern. You know, so I think that shows uh, you know, who, uh, you know, who Stern needed to, to show was uh, under his control and who uh, you know, under, under his watch was allowed to do or say what he pleased. Well, he, you know, he used to always say, I work for the owners. Sometimes it didn't feel like it, right? <laughs> but in that essence, in that, in that case with Sterling, and, and I think that is a blemish, and uh, there's no way to spin that. You know, Donald Sterling, everybody knew. And I give, I, I've always said that Adam Silver, t- it, t- it took a lot of courage to do what Adam Silver did, and it should have been done before, there's no doubt. Let's end by giving Stern credit for something that I think he deserves, you know, unambiguously that the WNBA would not exist without him. Can you just talk a little bit about that, Jackie? Sure, sure. And he, um, I always tell people it was never a matter of if they were going to do a women's league. It was only when he had been talking about it for a decade before he did it. He was just trying to figure out how he could best do, you know, best make it succeed. He was a great champion of women, <laughs> although you say that and you think back to Dave, uh, Donald Sterling, that, that seems a little contradictory. But Donald Sterling aside, I can tell you from my own personal experience, he was a great champion. I was uh, often the only woman in the arena covering the games back in the early 80s. Like, well, there was a few others of us, Jeanette Howard, a few others sprinkled, Shelley, Shelley Smith. Anyway, he, with the WNBA, he just he wanted to do it right. So he spent some time looking into it. I think they were smart to capitalize on the success that the women had in Atlanta. So the time was right. There was interest from um, advertisers. And again, both Stern and Rick Welts, who was heavily involved in that, were smart enough to understand that was important. And then once the WNBA was launched, and uh, you know, the first year was so exciting, they sold out Madison Square Garden, and you know, Stern was in the stands with Val Ackerman and others, and, and Carol you know, Blaze watching this all unfold. Then it became a crusade for him, and he knew what he was dealing with. He was very smart with the media, as you referenced in the in the open, and he knew that this was not something that the mainstream media was going to cover. He knew that, and he wasn't going to rest until they did. And he wasn't. It was never going to be. People would come to him and say, "Well, the numbers aren't good. The attendance is just is a little spotty. I don't know." And he he's like, "Not on my watch. This will not fail. I will not let this fail." It was that important to him. He just really felt as though. The women had a right to have a league like this. And I remember I talked to him in 2012, right after the Olympics in London, because that was the Olympics of U.S. women, for sure, in all sports, not just basketball. And we talked about the WNBA, and he said, just go back and look at the, w, the, the NBA when it started. 
and how long it took, you know, in the early going guys were taking trains to play the Fort Wayne Pistons. They had to jump off in a cornfield and walk to the hotel or hitch a ride to the hotel. There was no way to get there. There was no money. They, people had to have second jobs to, um, to play in the NBA. And then over time, we got them where they go. And he felt very strongly that the same thing could happen with the women and in the WNBA. And he just, he wasn't going to take no for an answer on that one. Jackie McMullen is one of the legendary reporters covering basketball. She's the co-editor of Basketball, A Love Story, which came out in 2018. Jackie, thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about David. Oh, I love talking about David. Thanks, guys. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we talk to director Theo Anthony about his documentary about instant replay, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Josh and I will talk about all the NFL playoff games that we did not talk about with Seth Stevenson. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangupplus. In 2006, the U.S. Open became the first of tennis's Grand Slams to allow players to challenge line calls. In the decade-plus since, the Hawkeye review system has become ubiquitous in the sport. The new documentary short, Subject to Review, which is part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series, traces the rise of Hawkeye, but it's less about tennis than about the nature of objectivity. Let's listen to a clip. There are no straight lines in the natural world. A line is an ideal an impossible fiction. In tennis, a line is a border between two zones on which it is assumed there's some essential difference. Here, it is something. Over there, it's something else. A line is a compromise, a truce. The physical world says, what you ask is impossible. The line says, we've done good enough. Subject to review will be available to stream on ESPN Plus starting on January 13th, and I'd recommend that you do stream it because it's interesting and delightful and weird. Joining us now to talk about it is the director, Theo Anthony. Hey, Theo. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Of course. Um, Let's start with the Hawkeye system. It uses high-speed cameras to create a simulation of a tennis ball's path. And that point is central to your movie, Theo, that what we're watching when we see a Hawkeye replay during a tennis match isn't really real. It's what cameras and computers say the flight of the ball probably looked like. But it looks real. And as fans, we interpret it as real. And that's kind of trippy. Yeah, I think a lot of my work uh, deals with visual systems and maps and all these ways we use to like organize information into something that's recognizable to us as you know uh, interpretable evidence. And I think that uh, you know so often we mistake the image of the world for the world itself. And I think a lot of my work just tries to pry open that really big gap between that. Why do you think tennis decided when it implemented Hawkeye back in two thousand six? Why why did they pick a system that would 
offer this simulation of reality, this image of what we want to see as clarity with the you know, the, the representation of the court and the stands and the ball's path and the ball's mark on the court. It all looks real and it's designed to trick us into believing that it is definitive. Yeah, no, this is, this is a really big question. And so I'll try to keep it super concise. The film kind of gets into a lot of these questions. So when Hawkeye was introduced, uh, there was a string of uh, missed calls, uh, probably the highest profile being the Serena Williams, uh, Jennifer Capriati, 2004 U.S. Open match in which there was like five or six blown calls against Serena that obviously cost her the match. And so there's this huge call for, you know, some sort of uh, system to, to check, you know, errant human judges. And um, at the time, Hawkeye was being tested out as a, as a broadcast instrument, and people saw it as an opportunity to, uh, you know, enhance the justice of the, of the sport um, while also enhancing the, the viewing experience. And the viewing experience is like a really crucial part of it because it, Hawkeye presents a world that, looks recognizable to us. And that's really important because the visualization is it's for the human. It's not for the computer. The computer does not need to visualize something uh, that the humans need to understand what the computer is doing. So when you see a Hawkeye rend like render of, of the tennis court, what you're actually seeing is kind of a, a case or an argument for this is how the world should look. And the way that Hawkeye does that is, is try to make it as indistinguishable as possible from the world that we're seeing with our own eyes. So all these things we're seeing, you know, in the reconstruction, the simulation aren't actually necessary. But from like a market perspective, it's really helpful because Hawkeye is also, you know, a private company and they're selling their product. And so it's to their best uh, in their interest to have something that looks like the real world. Yeah. And as you note in the doc, um, Hawkeye knows the answer right away. And that answer is withheld to enhance dramatic tension. You have the players and the, the fans all looking up at the screen. If you go to a tennis tournament, people clap along. Oftentimes the rhythmic clapping is really not that rhythmic, so it kind of ruins the effect for me. But um, there is this kind of they they make it into a spectacle. There's this system that is supposed to be definitive and clear and to be this omniscient judge and eye in the sky, and they turn it into kind of dramatic entertainment. And you would think that those things are kind of in conflict with each other, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would You would think that. Um, I think that something, one of the big, uh, one, one of the richest areas for me to explore in this was actually they're really not in conflict, that the idea of spectacle and justice always kind of go hand in hand. If you think about like a, a courtroom, right, with the jury is kind of like the audience, right? Like, and the the prosecution and the defense are are not just laying out cold facts. You want a charismatic attorney performing these th this evidence. And so, uh, there's there's this line um, by this writer Thomas Keenan, who I really love and was a big inspiration for this film. And he says, uh, "Evidence is precisely that which is not self-evident." So this idea that evidence always needs to be presented, always needs to be performed, actually ties the two, you know, seemingly disparate ideas of entertainment and justice ever closer together. And, you know, I'm watching the documentary, Theo. What really struck me is how tennis did the right thing in terms of creating the illusion of reality, where other sports have failed, and most recently VAR in soccer, is that they are giving fans a video representation, a replay of what happened. Can you imagine how different it would be if every sport had chosen to go the tennis route and create a simulation to show us, for instance, whether the toe 
was offside, not by showing us Jack Grealish's toe, but by showing us a representation, a, a computer image of the mark where the distance where a football boot had passed or whether a ball had crossed the plane. And mm. the other sports are criticized because this reality reality, the video is inconclusive. Tennis, though, gives us what appears to be an answer when that's what we want. Yeah. And I think the question is, is always at what cost? Um, sure. I, I, you're kind of, you're kind of getting into, I would have loved to make like a whole series of films, like kind of a comparative study of how different sports use instant replay in different ways. The VAR uh, with the video assistant referee in, in, in soccer right now is super fascinating. It's, it is uh, markedly different from the way that Hawkeye works and that uh, video assistant uh, technology a human is still finally making, you know, the call. If there's if there's a call in the field, it goes up to uh, the replay booth and they review it. You know, at you know, ten thousand frames per second or whatever. I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but uh, it's still a human that has to make the call. What is what is unique about tennis is that the automated system of Hawkeye supersedes the authority of of the human judge on the field. And in the case of an error, and to be fair to Hawkeye, those errors are very very rare there is no off switch or any default. I want to, I want to kind of like maybe shift it. I don't, so I don't, I'm obviously critical of the way that tennis uses it. I think that it is in a, a net positive for the sport and for the viewing experience, but just to shift it real quick to something that a sport that I really do think does it well, which is cricket. Um, and I apologize for kind of like, uh, a, a cricket explanation. Cause I understand like there's not a, I'm not a big cricket fan, but I had to learn a little bit about how it works, but, Basically, there's this call called the leg before wicket, and essentially there's like a, a bowler or a pitcher throwing a ball at the batter, and the batter is essentially defending, they're like a goalie, these three uh, posts in the ground called a wicket. Now, the, the pitcher is trying to knock the wicket down, and the, bowl, like the, the batter is trying to defend the ball from hitting it. So in the sport, it's illegal to block the wicket um, with your leg, and if you block it and the ball was on the path to hit the wicket, it's called a leg before wicket, and that's illegal. Now, it's a really easy thing for Hawkeye to do in that it's just extending like the curve of the ball. But the really interesting thing is that you're ruling on something that would have happened but did not. So you're making a predictive judgment, and that's a really interesting uh, difference. But what's even more interesting about it is the way that the two sports render uncertainty like uh, differently. So the film gets into this, but I talk a lot about how there's no such thing as 100% accuracy. That's just basic statistics. We live in like, you know, a really messy world and our instruments aren't perfect. We aren't perfect. You know, there's a lot more there, but in tennis, what you see is a very clean line of a ball. Like in, and I said this in the film is inside is ball outside is not ball. And there's this infinitely thin line that separates the, the, the two states. And that's a fiction. That's not a real state of the world. In cricket, what they do is they actually show that uncertainty as a shaded oval instead of a clean line. And what they do is that if the ball, like if they show where the ball like would have hit it, but it's within a certain uh, margin of error, uh, they always they default to the human judge. So it's a little bit in the weeds, but it's really interesting that in one sport they just say here's binary in out, and then in the other they say ah, you know actually at this edge our technology isn't good enough to make a decision. We're going to default to human authority. And I think that that is a really amazing way to, to co-evolve and to use technology together and to not let it outpace our own lived experience. 
Theo, can you imagine if what you described actually made its way to the NFL? If instead of pretending that things that aren't definitive on the field, they like had a shaded oval of uncertainty around the ball, like when, uh, you know, uh, it was a catch or, or not a catch. Just like our sports want to deliver these uh, messages to us that the the referees know what happened, that it's possible to know what happened. And I think the spread of replay and the fact that there's been replay creep in the NFL and the NBA, it's being used to evaluate more and more calls that it's perhaps not uh, suitable to adjudicate. And I think your film really helped convince me more than that I was already convinced that replay is overused. Because if if it's going to be applicable anywhere, it's in tennis. There's a very small number of variables, and none of them really involve people. It's just a ball and a line. And yet you show really beautifully, I think, how much uncertainty there is, even when it's just a ball and a line. And you don't inject, you know, did the ground cause the fumble and all of the stuff that, that we have, say, in, in football. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I think that's a, that's a really... It's a really nice interpretation. Um, I think that you're kind of getting at the core of the film. Um, just like me, my feeling is that I think, you know, sports would just be, to me, so much more interesting if we made room for uncertainty, right? Like, we don't watch tennis to see, like, two robots hit back and forth forever. You know, our goal isn't 100% accuracy. If, we, if it was, we'd just, like, watch two AIs playing Pong against each other. I think that you know, we need to make room for this uncertainty and also to like kind of have some transparency into what goes into this decision making. I think your use of the word replay creep is like really uh, interesting. Replace replay with surveillance creep. And I think that you see a much larger picture that I was trying to get at with this film, which is that, um, you know, increasingly we see these really opaque algorithms defining our everyday lives. We see a judicial system that, you know, is supposed to be fair and work for people. It it is, you know, dense, it's full of human errors. And, you know, to pretend that these are perfect systems kind of like uh, forecloses on the possibility of changing those systems. And so I think that it's really important to have some uh, visibility and legibility of, of the mechanics of how these systems work. One of the things that gets suggested repeatedly on Twitter and in the media regarding soccer is that there should be a creation of a sort of a space, an oval of uncertainty, a few millimeters where you don't say, you know, you give you give the benefit of the doubt to the to the referee on the field. And that does seem to be the logical um, place to go here. But it also feels like that would be in conflict with what leagues want. I mean, I would love to hear NFL referees get on the mic on the field and say, after further review, the play falls within the oval of uncertainty and the ruling on the field stands. Um, I think that would be highly entertaining. <laughs> but I don't think that the NFL, for all, in all of its infinite wisdom, which seeks over and over, and other sports as well, to lead us to believe that there is this objective reality with their decision-making, is going to be willing to go down there. Well, they do have the difference between the ruling on the field stands and we confirm the call stands they say we can't quite we there's no not enough evidence to overturn it and confirms it's like oh yeah they sure. they got it exactly right so there is that distinction yeah and i think it's not surprising to me that it's not that way and i think that um again the question comes in of market interests where it's it's in the interest of the nfl and, and their agenda to present themselves as an unassailable authority um and that actually introducing uncertainty into something um, just the way the world works might actually call into question uh, 
a lot of a lot of that authority. Um, I, I don't want to go too far out on a limb here, but I think a lot of the questions I was also trying to maybe poke at or gesture at was that maybe this is the way that power has always worked, you know, from religious institutions to government institutions is, is, is presenting a, a certain picture of the world and in the chaos of the world. And um, yeah. The documentary is called Subject to Review. You can stream it on ESPN Plus starting on January 13th. It's about Hawkeye and Replay and a lot more. And you should check it out. Theo Anthony, director of Subject to Review. Thank you for chatting with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for Afterballs. And Stefan, we didn't get into the fact that there's now replay creep in tennis. Tennis itself. There's a new event called the ATP Cup, and they debuted at this event, a new replay system for foot faults to determine if a player's foot goes uh, over the line. And the guy who was subject to it for the first time was the Belgian player David Goffin. And he was penalized. He was found to have committed a foot fault and he was not upset, which does seem very Belgian. Here's what Goffin said after the match. It is quite cool. It is something more that we have for the match and it's good to use the technology. Everybody loves technology. For your appreciation of technology, Mr. Goffin, you will be honored with this week's Afterballs. Stefan, what is your Goffin? At our live show last month in my Afterball about minor league baseball nicknames, I mentioned the Rocket City Trash Pandas of Huntsville, Alabama, which hosts a NASA flight center and apparently has a lot of raccoons. I heard from a couple of listeners who were inspired to purchase Trash Pandas t-shirts, That's why I got into this business, to change lives. And then last week, we received a voicemail from 36-year-old Keith Petit of Omaha, Nebraska. Keith wanted to let us know that he believes he coined the phrase trash pandas, meaning raccoons. Keith told us that he first used trash pandas in a short story he wrote while in the Peace Corps in China in 2011, about the same time he started listening to this podcast, he said. The story was about a Peace Corps volunteer so slovenly that his apartment gets infested with raccoons. Spur the moment brain fart, Keith said. I just came up with the term trash pandas because obviously they look like pandas eating trash. Then in January 2014, he commented on Reddit under a photo of a raccoon wearing a white shirt, black vest, and black bow tie. Raccoons equal trash pandas. I obviously couldn't independently confirm Keith's story about the short story, but we talked and everything else seemed to check out. Keith does appear to be the Reddit user who wrote raccoons equal trash pandas, after which trash pandas as a synonym for raccoons went viral. There are, however, some earlier examples. I found a 2007 performance art project titled Trash Panda and the Plywood Carousel Rejects by an artist named Mitchell Wiebe at the Struts Gallery in Sackville, New Brunswick 
Brunswick. I emailed Mitchell to ask about his word choice. I used that phrase because it sounded good. You know, talking trash panda. I hadn't heard the term before, but I had a painting of a panda bear on a wall with the eyes cut out and one could look through them into a space where I was painting wearing a costume. There was a performance where I worked on some canvases and several persons accompanied me in a musical performance. The installation had all sorts of plywood scraps piled and painted to resemble something of a carousel. There was definitely a feeling of mischievous in the air, rascals or raccoons, but not specifically raccoons. My friend, the lexicographer Ben Zimmer, however, unearthed a more raccoon-specific tweet from 2011 by at Hey It's Urban, whom the website Buffalo Spree, in crowning him best tweeter of 2012, described as a smart gay, sabers-loving, sometimes NSFW comics fanboy. Raccoons are just white trash pandas, at Hey It's Urban wrote. White trash pandas not trash pandas. The tweet anyway had just four likes and 10 retweets and it did not prompt trash pandas to blow up. It did blow up after the 2014 Reddit comment. Subreddits, Instagram hashtags, memes. It's in Urban Dictionary now and Wiktionary and the online slang dictionary. I found two bands, one in Seattle, one in Atlanta named Trash Panda, both founded in 2015. And of course, it's in the 2017 movie Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Here's the scene. What are we even talking about this for? We just had a little man save us by blowing up 50 ships. How little? Uh, like this? A little one-inch man saved us. Well, if he got closer, I'm sure he'd be much larger. If it's how eyesight works, you stupid raccoon. Don't call me a raccoon! I'm sorry. I took it too far. I meant trash panda. Is that better? I don't know. It's worse. It's so much worse. The Guardians of the Galaxy character was named Rocket Raccoon. So when the owners of the AA Mobile Bay Bears announced in 2018 that they would move the team to Madison, Alabama, outside of Huntsville for the 2020 season and call the team's location Rocket City instead of Madison, where the team's going to play, the nickname seemed, if not logical, then at least plausible. The team held an online naming contest and Trash Pandas won in a landslide over Thunder Sharks, Moon Possums, Space Chimps, and Comet Jockeys. But the guy who submitted Trash Pandas, 32-year-old Michael Higley, said in a story on AL.com that while he had seen the movie, his submission, one of 15 that he made, by the way, was not inspired, at least not consciously, by it. I was just thinking of animals of the local area and nicknames for them, he said. I knew realistically, looking at other minor league team names, that raccoons probably wasn't going to get it. I had to get a little more creative. Higley knew the term trash pandas from the internet, so he sent it in. Our community, he wrote in his submission, is known for engineering, and no creature in our galaxy is as smart, creative, determined, and ingenious, a problem solver, dedicated to the challenge at hand, as our local raccoons. Higley wore a coonskin cap to the name announcement. In any case, we are proud that a Hang Up and Listen listener appears to be responsible for the spread of Trash Panda as a synonym for those ingenious problem solvers dedicated to the challenge at hand. Keith Petit told us that it would be nice if the Rocket City Trash Pandas let him throw out a first pitch. But I don't know. Then I'd have to go to Alabama, he said. I'm not really too keen on that idea.
Before I go, I just want to correct something that I said on last week's show. I said that in our call out for listener comments for sports moments of the decade, no one had mentioned Landon Donovan's World Cup goal against Algeria in 2010. In fact, Carrie O'Brien Bauman did do that on our Facebook page. Credit restored. Thanks, Carrie. Josh, what's your go fan? So it was really loud. On Sunday afternoon in the Superdome, I wore earplugs most of the time when the Saints were on defense, but my left ear is still stopped up. In fairness, that could be because I'm getting over a cold. But Wait, wait, wait. I need to stop you there. Did you bring earplugs because you knew that it gets loud in the Superdome? Did you think it was like a rock concert? I've been to football games before in the Superdome. It gets extremely loud. Wow. That's, that's the point of the earplugs. The Dome scoreboard had specific instructions for us. It said we could be sure of disrupting the Vikings offense if we got to 117 decibels or above. And there was an on-screen decibel meter we could use to track our progress. Clearly, this reading was wrong if we had gotten to like over 118, then the Saints would have won. I'm not sure where that 117 figure came from. Stefan, we did get over it a bunch of times. We did. Congratulations. I think we did our part. I think uh, I, I am not personally to blame for the Saints' horrifying defeat. But if you're wondering what does 117 decibel sound like, I found a couple of comparable sounds that I'd like to share with you now. First, from an October story in Science Magazine, it has the enticing headline, Watch the World's Loudest Bird Scream for a Mate. The story begins, when it comes to choosing a mate, female white bellbirds won't settle for just any guy. They want a male that sings louder than any other bird in the world. Researchers found that the male white bellbird actually cranks it up to 125 decibels, totally disrupting the Vikings offense. In an accompanying video, though, there is one call that's at exactly 117 decibels, louder than most jackhammers. We're going to play a clip, but don't be afraid. Our producer, Melissa, they're going to be on the dials. You will not suffer from hearing loss, I hope. Let's listen. If I have not destroyed your hearing yet, let's move on to another example. Back in the 70s, the Guinness Book of World Records reported that the band Deep Purple was the loudest in the world. Have you ever go to a Deep Purple show, Stefan? No. And I'm insulted that you would ask because that it implies that I would have been going to rock concerts in the 1970s. I did see Jethro Tull in 1979, though. Deep Purple has been performing continuously for decades, and so there is no implication that you had attended in the 70s, but I'll continue. They were deemed the loudest in the world, registering a reading of 117, exactly 117 decibels at a concert in London that was so loud that reportedly three members of the audience fell unconscious. I have not been able to verify that those three unconscious audience members actually existed. I was, though, able to find the entire concert on YouTube. It was at London's Rainbow Theater. Isn't the internet a magical place? Uh, let's just pause and note how remarkable it is that we could get uh, this concert on online. Let's listen, Stefan, to those famous chords from Deep Purple's Smoke on the Water. Hope you don't get knocked unconscious. Come on, Stefan. You felt that. I'm knocked unconscious by the spirit of rock and roll. 
So how accurate are these decibel meter readings? I would say I trust the bird one the most because bird people just feel trustworthy to me. I would put the football one in last place because they're obviously going to try to juice the numbers to make the place seem as loud as possible. And there's also no generally accepted standard for how to measure crowd noise. Obviously, the distance that you're away from the sound is important. We can, uh, you know, the the 117 of the the bird call in the in the deep purple. That was from a specific location. We can tweak it a little bit as we're playing it for you on uh, through your ears as you're as you're walking the dog. And yet we get these uh, numbers that are uh, definitive. Uh, last year, the acoustics company Ascentech published a blog post in which it very politely questioned the game, the claim, again put forward by the Guinness Book, that the crowd at Kansas City's outdoor Arrowhead Stadium reached 142.2 dBA in September 2014. Uh, this this blog post notes that Ascentech principal consultant Michael Batarian remembers the first time he was in a tugboat engine room with two 2,500-horsepower EMD diesel engines operating at, at full power. He notes... If I recall, the sound level was 128 dBA, and I could not hear myself scream at the top of my lungs. That's uh, 14 decibels quieter than the Arrowhead Stadium record. A a difference of 10 decibels, according to Ascentech, is perceived as half of the sound level. Do we all really think the center of an NFL stadium is twice as loud as 2,500 horsepower EMD diesel engines operating at full power, Stefan? Do you think so? No, but are you sure it was an NFL game and not a Deep Purple concert? Great question. It was an NFL game, not a Deep Purple concert. So we can we can be sure that these these numbers are juiced. They also used something called a peak measurement, and the blog post gets into it in in some detail. Um, but uh, it's it's a measurement that's as low as two and a half milliseconds, rather than a longer reading of like twenty milliseconds. And so they were kind of questioning why you would go with a peak measurement because. Even if you're like measuring a gust of wind at uh, you know two and a half milliseconds, it could make it sound like it's a jet engine. And so Arrowhead Stadium, Guinness Book, we're not buying it. 142, it's not real, Stefan. Though I hope the Saints are going to market 117th man <laughs> next year. Deep purple, purple people eaters. I feel like we left a little bit on the table there with with that, but I think maybe we should just end the show. That's our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hangup. In our bonus segment, Josh and I talk about the other NFL wildcard games that we didn't get to in our earlier segment with Seth Stevenson. Watson is a guy who maybe gets lost a little bit in all of the understandable fanfare that Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes gets. But this is a player who led Clemson to win over Alabama when Alabama was in its indomitable phase, leading Clemson on a game-winning drive and throwing the winning pass, uh, you know, with, with one second to go. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Josh Levine, I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? 
I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.